0: So at the beginning of the month, I began by acknowledging how gradually we come to understand the nature of this body, of this body-mind continuum, of this process that has uh, we brought mindfulness to, observing it moment to moment. And with the continuity of mindful awareness, how wisdom grows, we've seen that in each one of you. In your own ways, the various ways that the understanding of the body-mind process, this continuum, brings deeper understanding to your own lives. We also see how practical wisdom grows, how to bring a tender, compassionate awareness to whatever's happening, how to be more spacious about all of that, not put it in a kind of a tight pressure cooker, how to be more relaxed so that in that safety, that feeling of safety from a more relaxed place of compassionate awareness, the mind and heart can unfurl. It can unfold and expose what perhaps has been long hidden or maybe not seen so clearly in the past maybe not seen as dangerous, and now seen in its true light or better light. It's balanced by bringing a sobering honesty, a courageous clarity to what's going on. Not pushing oneself or awareness away, not turning away, not striking out at, We're able to do this sobering honesty even when it's difficult to bear. This is what bringing our attention moment to moment helps us to do. So with this balance of relaxed, tender attention, yet this piercing clarity, we're able to uh, see, understand, experience more the profound wisdom that's waiting to be known freeing the heart and mind from past ignorance, from present ignorance. We begin to see how this ignorance is a fuel for greed, for hatred. So more and more in our lives, as those of you who have continued on in your process, you've begun to see that unfailing wisdom arises in relationship to various life experiences that we have. It's not just here in the quietness of a meditation retreat or a refuge like this where wisdom exposes itself, but it comes about in uh, surprising ways sometimes in our home life. So that no matter what happens in our lives, we can see that it's possible for wisdom to... Arise, clearly be seen, and from that wisdom we're able to respond more skillfully, more compassionately. So tonight I'd like to uh, continue the talk I began the other evening about the sure heart's release, and I'd like to begin with the words of the Buddha. Buddha. So this holy life, bhikkhus, the Buddha says, does not have gain and honor and renown for its benefit or the attainment of virtue for its benefit or the attainment of concentration for its benefit or knowledge and vision for its benefit. But it is this unshakable deliverance of mind, this sure heart's release, that is the goal of this holy life. That is its heartwood and its end. This is the far-reaching benefit of our practice. So this talk is meant to help you understand the long-range view of this path, this journey. Sometimes it's hard to see the big forest and the, and the pathways in it from all the trees and with our moment-to-moment experience. So I wanted to make it possible for all of us to see beyond this moment-to-moment experience, beyond whatever goals you have made for yourselves. They're wonderful and worthy goals, of course, to be more loving, to be more virtuous, to deepen concentration, to be able to open the heart, to cleanse the mind of the... uh, Greed, hatred, and delusion, of course this is wonderful. But to stay open to more far-reaching possibilities. It's meant to help you be in more complete alignment with the true purpose of the teachings and not to short, um, short-circuit yourselves, not to limit yourselves. So I just want to repeat these important words, uh, because the Buddha says this in a different passage as well. The purpose of my teaching of the holy life of the Dhamma is not for gaining merit, nor for good deeds, nor for rapture, nor for concentration, but for the sure heart's release. This and this alone is the reason for the teachings of the Buddha." So here, and in um, other parts of the ancient scriptures, the Buddha makes clear that all of these goals that we might have when we come to meditation practice are indeed important. Virtuous conduct, generosity, wholesome speech and behavior, the knowledge and vision that we uh, gain through the practice, the concentration, all indeed are part of the holy life. But they're not the complete path. They're not the highest aspiration. The ultimate aim and the very reason for these teachings are the sure heart's release that the Buddha spoke of. To point the way, to present the possibility of this unshakable deliverance of mind. So... The ultimate reality of the unconditioned, it's not something that we hear about so often in the presentation of the teachings of the Buddha. So I wanted to include that in my talk this evening. This unconditioned, the complete departure, the complete relinquishing of craving, the extinction of suffering... Last time I talked about the three pillars of the Dhamma as a whole, as kind of a framework. This is one of my teachers, Manindraji, how he framed it. These are the three pillars of the Dhamma, the practice of mindful living with a generous heart and acting on it. The first pillar is generosity, or dana. The second pillar is sila, or living in harmony, This is what I spoke about, Uh, these two I spoke about the first evening. I gave my Dhamma talk here. Living in harmony is actively refraining from speech and behavior that would harm others and that would harm our own karmic stream. So out of deep respect, out of compassion for others and ourselves, we do these practices. These practices in and of themselves bring great happiness. They bring a great feeling of release in the mind and heart, a sense of inviolable well-being. We know that when we take seriously the practice of sila, the practice of dana, Practicing allows the inner world to relax, to untighten, to not feel constricted with regret, with guilt. We're not lost in blaming ourselves. We're not lost in blaming others. We're not lost in defending ourselves if we're blamed. This produces a powerful sense of faith, a powerful sense of devotion to our path of liberation, our ability to navigate the inner and outer terrain of our lives with confidence Because we're not caught in doubt, we're able to see that the possibility of going beyond what we presently know to what is unknown, to get a glimpse of the farther horizon, perhaps, of the other shore. This is the inherent capacity we all have to experience peace and happiness, not dependent on anything in this world not dependent on getting what we want, not dependent on uh, being even a good person or uh, having deep uh, concentration. But it is beyond all that. It's the unconditional peace and happiness that the Buddha spoke of, rarely but often enough to understand that this is the goal, the ultimate goal, or the goalless goal of the practice. So to go beyond, yet still include, the understanding of dana, giving, generosity. To go beyond, but still include, the understanding of sila, of living in harmony. So to be able to hold both these conditional relationships and to understand these conditional relationships from a place of understanding, experiencing the unconditioned. So with these two, dana and sila, as sturdy foundations, we have faith in ourselves. We have faith in our spiritual well-being. We develop a deeper, stronger, more uh, sturdy ability to be devoted to our path, to bring up the energy to go forth, to do what needs to be done. We're more able to practice the third pillar of the Dhamma, which I'll speak of this evening, Bhavana, is, which is the development of the mind and the heart. Bhavana means bringing forth what has not yet been developed in the mind and the heart. So in the West, usually mental development means acquiring knowledge, learning and applying that knowledge in the world. Of course, this is really important. In meditative uh, fields, it could be acquiring and having blissful states of mind, knowing how to get there. But from a perspective of the teachings of the Buddha, mental development is about understanding and strengthening those capabilities of the mind and heart, which actually liberate it from ignorance, from greed, from hatred. Not just uh, being soothed by having sila and generosity to protect us, to make us sort of have a feeling of being a good human being, but to eventually uproot, totally uproot, greed and hatred and delusion not bypassing this, not going around it by ignoring it, or thinking that we can just hear some of the wonderful teachings of the great masters or beings that live today and just agree with them and think, oh, this is wonderful, but not realize it for ourselves. This is not the path that the Buddha was talking about. This, is, this path is about direct experiential understanding, liberating knowledge. So bhavana, there's two areas of mental development in bhavana. The first is samatha, concentration. And I'm just going to give a very short synopsis of this. By itself, this concentration or samatha leads to deep calmness and tranquility. This prepares the mind in stability and in strength. This is very important, very much needed. It makes the mind serviceable, this concentration. It pierces through the illusions of wrong understanding. And it leads to revealing the truth of the nature of all of life. So this revealing the truth of the nature of all of life is vipassana. This is the other part of bhavana, the second area of bhavana, the cultivation of wisdom, liberating wisdom. We hear this sometimes in Pali as panya, liberating wisdom. This leads to transformative understanding through the various insights that come about very naturally, just through being moment-to-moment mindful. It leads to the unconditioned peace of nibbana. These are no small things, of course, important to understand what path we're on. I came across this saying not long ago, And there was something similar in a book I just picked up, and it's from Yogi Berra. If you don't know where you're going, any path will take you there. (laughs) So (laughs) do we really know? Do we really know the path? Or are we just being in this little, you know, limited mind space? Can we open to something bigger, actually, than what we know? Can we keep, can we understand the path, but just kind of have it open-ended at the end so that what we don't know can be revealed. So first to expand on samatha, the concentration practices, and just to have some understanding of how they work. The concentration practices can be any one of the brahmaviharas: metta, sympathetic joy, um, compassion, equanimity. Concentration can be on visualizations, on the casinas, the balls of color that are sometimes given by the great masters to practice on. It can be on sound or in different traditions, other traditions, mantras. They can be on the breath when we use the breath exclusively as uh, our samatha or our concentration practice. So in these practices, the mental energy repeatedly is directed and focused on a single object, a particular object of meditation. In metta, it can be either the phrase, it can be the feeling that comes about, it can be the person that we bring up in our practice. These are the objects of meditation in metta, directing the attention over and over again to that place. And as I said, it can be the breath, or it can be a form, like a ball of color. Over and over, continuously, the mind is directed there. Whenever the attention falls away, uh, whatever it goes to, it, that is ignored, and it's brought back immediately to the object at hand, the object that is being focused on. When anything else comes into the field, even a thought, it is let go of, ignored immediately, not given attention. Because this attention is repeatedly going to a chosen object over and over and over again, in time, the momentum of all of that energized, focused attention becomes so strong that it creates this great field of protection. Nothing else can come in in that field because it's created by this attention over and over and over again to one object. Now just to keep you engaged in this, just think about how that's done for you when you've done metta practice, when you've brought your attention to the breath over and over and over again, how the energy towards that object can create a strong force field. And it's uh, difficult or sometimes it's rare Or sometimes we see a lessening of something coming into that force field to divert the attention. Nothing else can enter eventually when samatha or concentration is really strong. The hindrances are kept outside of this force field. Or it's said that the hindrances are kept at bay, far away. Sometimes we come into practice and we say, there's thoughts But the thoughts are so far away. It's not like we're getting entangled in them or there's more thoughts kind of in proliferation. It feels sometimes that uh, maybe a loud sound comes and there's kind of a reaction to it. But the reaction to it, whether it's aversion or simply an unpleasant feeling, is not so strong either. It's very, very light. It, do, it feels like it just slides away. The mind becomes so fixated and absorbed in the object, in the chosen object, that uh, it feels very, very protected in this force field. It happens through repetition, through continuity on one or limited objects. This is how it happens. There's an extraordinary feeling of calm tranquility, seclusion, a profound sense of ordinary experiences of of the mind being very far away. Now, in spite of all the suffering that we uh, experience on a retreat, these experiences of feeling very secluded actually are the ones that bring us back over and over. It's, It's funny how it is, isn't it, that we have this tremendous suffering on retreat and We can't wait to leave sometimes and then we get home and we, after a while, we long to be on retreat again. (laughs) It's these wonderful secluded experiences that are really important, actually, showing the strength of the mind and heart and the ability to experience uh, something that may be outside of our everyday experience. It brings us back. It's like giving birth. For those of you who are mothers, it's so painful. But the joy brings us back. Sometimes, (laughs) but not all the time. (laughs) I'm done with motherhood. (laughs) So oftentimes, and this is very universal, this is not pinpointing anyone. Oftentimes, yogis come in with the expression that, oh, this was so incredible that this thought arose that no other yogi has experienced this but me. Even the Buddha hasn't experienced this. And um, isn't that so for some of you? So we see that it's a a very uh, deep, important, uh, sublime experience The Buddha exalted and praised concentration, samatha practice. And as we all have understood experientially, this absorption, this calm, this tranquility will last only as long as one continues to do the practice of concentration, of samatha. And the momentum of the mind remains with that degree of focus. Of course, it can be very seductive to stay there. So we do stay there. But when the practice is stopped, deep calm and tranquility dissolve. And all the hindrances return. Sometimes all of a sudden and we feel bombarded or depending on how weak or how strong the practice has been sometimes it takes time for it to come back in. I did once a practice of loving kindness for two months. On That's all I did. Metta for two months. Sitting, walking, eating, going to the bathroom. All I did was metta on the for more than um, almost the whole two months, just on one uh, person or one um, category, the benefactor. It was very, very strong, um, the experiences. And um, it took a while for that concentration to go away, but that concentration really served the practice when I switched back to Vipassana. So by itself, this provides temporary freedom from the hindrances. The mind feels extraordinarily pure. The purity of the mind, the possibility of the purity of the mind is revealed to us. This is very important knowledge for us, the possibility of that kind of freedom. But of course, concentration, tranquility and calm do not give that kind of lasting experience. Because, as I said, when we stop the practice, the hindrances come back again. They're not uprooted in this practice. They're merely kept at bay, as wonderful as the practice is. So this is the first part of bhavana, in a nutshell, concentration. The second category of bhavana is the development of liberating insight, Wisdom. This is through vipassana practice. So, just briefly, we hear the word vipassana in the West, and we use this word in the West, vipassana. But actually, this word is not used in our traditional circles as the the practice that we're doing. Um, the practice that we're doing is called satipatthana uh, bhavana. This is the practice we're doing. Vipassana is the result of the practice. Vipassana means seeing or experiencing the true nature of phenomena as it really is. That is the result of the practice. Satipatthana, bringing attention to the four foundations of mindfulness, is our practice. So within our practice here, in the moment-to-moment view with extraordinary mindfulness, that we're developing because it's uh, continuous. And through the continuity, it deepens, it it strengthens, it gets more profound. This is very different from the ordinary mindfulness that we need to do our lives at home, to just know when to cross the street and when not to cross the street. This extraordinary mindfulness is what's needed to see things as they truly are, to see the nature of reality, to experience it. So we open to the full range of experience here, opening to the four foundations of mindfulness. This was laid out by the Buddha. So just briefly, in everyday language, the four foundations are sensations of the body, just to see what the path is, the feelings, Vedana, Mm. pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feelings. This this doesn't mean emotions. This is much more subtle. The full range of mental experiences, joy, loving kindness, anger, attachment. Experiences of the other sense doors, seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting, whether it's subtle or gross. And the knowing of all of that. We may use a primary anchor, like the breath or someplace in the body, to stabilize the attention. Or maybe some of us don't use a primary anchor. It's not exclusively anything, just open attention. So when we're doing our practice, everything that arises is the object of attention. It's not a chosen object in Vipassana. This is one of the main differences. In Samatha, there's a chosen object. In Vipassana, the, the field of experience of mindfulness is open to the four foundations. Whatever is predominant, whatever is obvious, whatever is in the foreground of attention. So mindfulness, that attention is repeatedly sent to whatever is occurring in the quickly fading present moment, over and over again. Concentration is hugely supportive in this regard. But again, as I say, concentration is not on a chosen object. It's on momentary changing objects. But still, concentration is developed, even if it's on changing objects. Very deep and quite enough concentration is developed. So, as we all know, the experience of vipassana is not one of great calm. It's not one of delight. We're not absorbed for a long time. It's why when people come in and they're experiencing a lot of suffering, seeing what the body is really about, seeing what the mind is really about, going underneath the concept, the thinking, underneath the, uh, that kind of construct of things, we, we directly experience the suffering of the body, of the mind. It's why when this happens, our teachers are happy, actually. There's a smile on their faces. You might have noticed mine when you brought in your suffering. Because you're really seeing reality just as it is. Mm-hmm. And without trying to run away from it or go have that cup of tea, which is still legitimate, Mindfully. Um, (laughs) I'm a softy about that, but if you try other teachers, you might not get away with that. Um, But this is really important to understand that suffering is really has to be part of the path, or else we're pushing away, or else we're craving for something else to happen. We're going towards the pleasant, we're avoiding the unpleasant. So just to open to it. Sometimes when I've been in a lot of painful bodily experience, and I think the teacher would say, um, it's okay, just back off a little, you know, and no, you don't get that from the teachers. I might have said to some of you, just sit a little longer with your pain. Just be with it. You know, see if you can go past that place where you say, now is time to get up. Um... So I've heard it from many of my other fellow yogis, too. Just to be there with the changing conditions, very important, whatever they are. So the subjective experience is not calm, but chaos. And this is how it is with Vipassana practice. This is how it must be in order to understand deeply the nature of reality. In this practice, we don't go around anything. We don't go on top of, over anything. We don't skip anything. If we don't go through it, it's really not authentic. We can't just take someone else's word for it and say, that's true, and I'm enlightened now. It's not uh, really authentic that way, I believe. And so did the Buddha. So in this feeling, this objective experience of chaos, one cannot stay with anything, even with a moment. Eventually it gets to that. We think my practice isn't very good. We think everything is falling apart. But really, that's really good. You know, everything's falling apart. Can't There's no security anywhere. There's nothing to land on. Some of you have said this. Um, you know, I can't... Where is really I? Where is mine? Everything's disappearing. There's nothing solid. Um, It's slippery. Some of these things are known. But this is the wrong evaluation, that your practice isn't very good. This is one of the places where, if we're not strong enough, it's called the rolling up of the mat. We say, I'm done. I want to go home, you know, Where's my own bed? And all of that. So uh, this is where, actually, this is why a teacher has to, um, it's helpful, really helpful to have a teacher. Because you we just might go home and just forget it. for uh, Just let it all go. But as Trungpa says, it would have been better if we never started. But now we can't stop, we can't go back, we have to finish, right? (laughs) So, But I don't know about it, it would have been better if we never started. Mm. So this practice is really good practice. We need guides. It's better not to judge. Um, This is where when judging comes up or doubting comes up, it's what we have to notice, judging, doubting, wanting to go home. This was a terrible place for me in practice. I was very far away in another country, and I wanted to go home. I just, tremendous homesickness came, longing, tremendous longing for my children, my home, being um, just in what's familiar, because everything becomes so unfamiliar at this time. It's a good thing I was far away, although there were many moments of planning to get out of there um, I remember being at this place uh, actually it was in Australia I think Sky was there too we were in the same retreat <laughs> it was a it was the hell realm retreat of my life you know in many ways they were doing some work on another room and a jackhammer was going and then it, it was actually a Catholic retreat for um, older nuns and I would I would go through the hallways and look and actually see relatives of mine in the Philippines, you know, in pictures and I'd think, Oh, let me go back you know. I'd pass the room where they were saying the rosary, where I would go to the big dorm I was in just to change my clothes and I'd say, Oh, I think I'll go say the rosary. It's so much easier <laughs> to say the rosary. But I didn't do that. Um, And I would go, you know, and say, I have to go home. I can't stand this. It's seeing things not seen before. And everything's falling apart, you know. I would say, my mother's not my mother. And who I thought I was is not there, you know. It's like everything wasn't there that was familiar. So this is the mindfulness and wisdom revealing insight into the true nature of experience. Have to stay there. Have to, have to experience that. Have to know that place. So the extraordinary facets of our... Um, when, when there's not this conceptual overlaying of thought that tries to keep it all together, you know, then whatever comes underneath that, kind of beyond or before the conceptual thinking gets exposed, the realizations, um, the understandings, the insights into the nature of reality. One of the first ones is the experience that there is the object of experience and the knowing of it. This seems very simple, if I would tell you. But you, if you have known this some way or touched it in some way, you know that it's kind of an untangling, a disentangling experience. People say, oh, I've noticed that the knowing is different from what is being known. This is quite big, actually, in the process. The object and the knowing are two distinctively different experiences. Sometimes yogis are calm when this is noticed. It's a relief. Sometimes for yogis this is a surprise and can be disturbing, actually, because a sense of self is breaking up. So also with this, there comes to be seen the conditionality of life. A meditator realizes experientially, not because it was read in a book, but sees, understands, Experientially, everything arises due to different changing uh, conditions. These different conditions come together and form something in this moment, uh, a thing. Maybe that thing is a self. Sensations come together with feelings, with mental experiences, with intentions, with the knowing of it all. And together it forms a sense of self. But a meditator begins to see through all this. This, too, begins to get disentangled. This seeing of the conditionality of all of life, that nothing really permanently exists in and of itself. This may seem like foreign words to you. I remember hearing these words long ago, and I had no idea what it meant until it was experienced But when I heard these things, sometimes over and over again, I just kept them there on the back of the the mind. And then it got pulled forward when the experience, when the deep experience would come. So nothing really permanently exists, maybe temporarily, but not permanently exists in and of itself. Or in combination with anything else. Things come together in combination. That doesn't make it a thing that permanently exists. In the next moment, as um, seeing things as they are, as vipassana, this extraordinary awareness, helps wisdom to grow and see that things are coming together and falling apart, coming together and falling apart, moment to moment to moment. This is a big shift in our understanding. We begin to make sense, of life in a different way. So because the continuity of practice, the momentum of mindfulness, builds strength and it's supported by this momentary concentration in vipassana. This momentary concentration can be so extraordinarily strong that, as Manindra's words, he puts it quite uh, succinctly, that it penetrates or it pierces the illusion of solidity. The illusion of solidity. We think something is solid. We notice the pain or the sensations of the body, and we think, this is solid. (laughs) And then we translate that this is me, this is mine, this is who I am. We see something going on in the mind, the continual thinking process or the mental processes of the mind we begin to see through the illusion of continuity, the illusion of solidity. And this is very, very helpful in our practice. A moment's experience of sensations that make up what we call body are seen uh, seen experientially and at the elemental level. That's why when we ask you to notice sensations in the body as hardness, softness lightness heaviness vibration swaying stiffness it's to point the point the mind towards the preconceptual view of what's going on when it's seen this way it's not seeing as seen as me mine or who i am so the elements of the earth element i pointed this out the other day in my um talk on compassion and wisdom. Hardness and softness of what is called body is the earth element. We're not thinking about this, but this just becomes known. Vibration, swaying, stiffness of what is called body is the air element being manifested in the body. The temperature, coldness, coolness, warmness, hotness, these variations of temperature are the fire element. Heaviness in the body when it's felt heavy is the water element, as water has this heavy aspect. And water binds all the other elements together. So this is the body, just these formations of changing elements over and over again. This is seen manifesting as pain, manifesting as pleasure. But we see underneath even all of that. And what about the mind in all its changing, infinite manifestations? Empty phenomena rolling on, as we hear that said from uh, our colleague Joseph Goldstein. So ephemeral, the stuff of the mind, yet so powerful, drawing us over and over again to believe what is really untrue, out of habit. So everything that makes up this mind and body continuum is seen as unceasingly arising, changing, dissolving into nothing. This is an important part of where the practice takes us because it takes the uh, us and mindfulness and wisdom into the insight into anicca, the insight into impermanence. That begins to deepen. Even if we were previously able to connect and sustain the attention on something, on objects, different objects arising and passing away, mindfulness cannot stay on anything, even for a moment. This doesn't happen because we're inclining the mind there. It happens naturally. It happens because... That's the nature of the mind and the power of mindfulness to see that, to reflect that true nature. Everything's fading away, transient, dissolving. In time, sometimes the beginning is seen. Sometimes the middle is seen. And in time, sometimes the ending is seen. And sometimes even the ending cannot be seen. It disappears. It's like vapor. Mindfulness reaches out. For the object to reflect it and before it even begins to reflect it's gone so the empty nature of phenomena begins to be seen more and more clearly this is experiencing the unstable nature of everything people often say Stay. it's so unstable it's so insecure and this is frightening this is a part of dukkha of suffering we don't want this because in the past, everything was stable. There was a lot of security. The body, the mind, sensations, all experiences of the mind, perception, feelings, intentions, consciousness, all of these arising, passing away, evaporating. Because the mind and wisdom lets go of the notion of permanence, it sees the truth of impermanence with bare attention. Doesn't back down from that insight. Doesn't turn away out of fear. Doesn't run towards something because something, some other familiar understanding could be more pleasant to deal with. But it totally opens to this right view, to this wisdom, to this understanding. And oftentimes, because this understanding of impermanence, this insight into impermanence arises, the deep understanding of dukkha, or suffering, comes about. This comes about as an insight knowledge. This is not unpleasant feeling. This is a very deep insight knowledge. Dukkha means suffering, but it means a lot more than suffering. Because everything is continuously and unceasingly changing, one understands with great compassion the vulnerability of all of life. All of you, almost all of you, if not all of you, have come in feeling very vulnerable. This is a result of your practice. This is actually seen in your posture, in your faces. And this is a good sign actually, when one becomes vulnerable, one becomes open to seeing more and more this unreliability of life to give us any kind of permanent happiness. So dukkha, this suffering, is the unreliability of life to give us any kind of permanent, lasting, enduring happiness. Of course, they're the momentary joys of life which we can enjoy and be grateful for and appreciate as being precious. But they're more precious because they're impermanent. So we understand dukkha. We come to understand dukkha with great compassion. Not with fear, but with great compassion. So from the basis of the insight to impermanence, not only comes the insight into dukkha, or suffering, but comes the insight knowledge of anatta. Atta is self. Anatta is not self. So it's the insight into not self, this characteristic of existence. This is from the Sutta of the Greater Advice to Rahula, when his father, the Buddha, was saying to him, Rahula, develop meditation on the perception of impermanence. For when you develop meditation on the perception of impermanence, the conceit, I am, will be abandoned. So it's true that this happens. This insight into the anatta characteristic, this not-self characteristic, also, gets touched in upon over and over again. And sometimes when the, mind, when the mind first begins to touch into this insight, it can be frightening. It's very um, unfamiliar, this place, when it is deeply seen. It, it's not seen from a heady knowledge. It's seen from really deep experience. Um, we see that there is nothing in here or nothing out there that's going to um, kind of give us any kind of security. There's just this opening into this moment and the next moment and the next moment. And somehow during that time, it's like we can't put it together. We can't put it together. We can't put anything together. And um, I remember when this was happening to me uh, the first time, it was... Uh, like, I couldn't stand it. I fell on the floor, and I started crying. And I said, I want to go home. Everything's falling apart, and I can't keep things together. And, um, of course, it really helped to have a strong teacher that said, well, this is good. And, <laughs> yes, you can. It will happen. <laughs> that it, You know, this insight actually will bring a lot of strength to the mind. So what is being seen is there's nothing solid in here. Isn't that being seen over and over again? There's nothing solid out there. It's continually arising and passing away. There's nothing solid out there that you can put together within here also that makes a self. There's no, like, greater self. It's just continually dissolving. So this breaks up a lot of our um, a lot of old ideas and concepts long held from time immemorial. That's why the Buddhist teaching was called revolutionary, because in his time this was unheard of. This anatta, it was atta, so he presented anatta, that understanding. So of course there is a sense of self. This does exist on the relative reality. We have to keep that in mind, that um, in this sense of self, we understand that there is wholesome and unwholesome, that we can harm ourselves and one another through not uh, keeping sila, not keeping the precepts. We must understand that on this level of existence, relative level. But in the ultimate level, we understand that it's all dissolving, everything that we know. And so in time we begin to hold both of these understandings, the ultimate understanding and the relative understanding, the relational understanding, we begin to hold them together. It's okay to understand the relative within the absolute, the absolute within the relative. As Padmasambhava says, though my view is as vast as the sky, he means the right view of things as they are. Though my view is as vast as the sky, my attention to the laws of cause and effect are as fine as barley flour. So we pay attention to how we are on the relational level, but we understand how it truly is in the absolute level. And actually, this allows us to live more deeply, to live more fully in our lives. I want to read this from Trungpa Rinpoche because he says, in kind of everyday language, um, what seeing into this experience is like. Seeing into anatta, another way of seeing this, saying this is the conditionality of life, of all of the aspects of life. The experience of oneself relating to other things is actually a momentary discrimination, a fleeting thought. If we generate these fleeting thoughts fast enough, we can create the illusion of continuity and solidity. Like watching a movie, the individual film frames are played so quickly, they generate the illusion of continued movement. So we build up an idea a perception, a preconception that self and other are solid and continuous. And once we have this idea, we manipulate our thoughts to confirm it and we are afraid of contrary evidence. It is the fear of exposing this or the denial of impermanence that imprisons us. It is only by acknowledging impermanence that there is the possibility of appreciating life as a creative process. So the wisdom mind sees all compounded things as they really are. It's not I or me or my wisdom. It's wisdom that sees all compounded things as they really are. Impermanent unsatisfactory, not self. And when this is seen very deeply, the mind and heart become disenchanted with what was previously it was enchanted by. It's easy to not feel attached. Disenchantment comes easily. Relinquishing comes easily. As Manindra would say, At times, let go, let go, let go, let go. At times, that's all he would say. Don't hold on to anything. Not this body, not this mind, not anything outside of it. It's beyond all that. Form is impermanent. Feeling is impermanent. Perception is impermanent. Volitional formations are impermanent. Consciousness is impermanent. What is impermanent is dukkha, is suffering. What is suffering is not self. So nothing at all is to be clung to. It is seen very clearly. Nothing at all can be clung to. We don't really have to let go. Everything is letting go of itself in a way. We can say that because of impermanence. The mind stream becomes very purified because greed and hatred are not there they can't even be held on to, especially as a me or a mine or a self. All formations arising and passing away without adding anything more to that those formations. So as I said in the first talk that I gave at the beginning, where I, um, when Manindra asked me, what is your goal of the holy life? And I said, I want to know God. I didn't know how I, else I could say that. But he answered, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And so, this purity of heart, because there's the absence of greed and hatred, the absence of delusion, is experienceable. It's not like um, a myth. So, the moment, moment, momentum of that continuity becomes very powerful. There's no place else to go. The Eightfold Noble Path is being fulfilled. The cause of the unconditioned, they say, the condi- one of the conditions to leap into the unconditioned is the Eightfold Noble Path. So when the momentum of that continuity becomes very powerful, the direction towards greater fe- freedom is inevitable. It, we don't need to do anything about it. It's just keeping mindful, moment to moment, whatever is coming up. The momentum of the mind leaps into the unconditioned, which is the goal of the Buddhist teaching. So I'd like to read a little bit about that, because it, this cannot be described, because there is no thing to describe. It's beyond words. It's beyond imagination. It's beyond formations. It's beyond even knowing. So the Buddha said, this is from the Udana, about Nibbana. There is, O monks, an unborn, an unbecome, unmade, uncompounded. If there were not this unborn, unmade, uncompounded, then there would be no deliverance here visible from that which is born, made, uncompounded. But since there is this unborn, unbecome, unmade, uncompounded, a deliverance is possible from that which is born, become, made, compounded. There is, O monks, that sphere where there is neither earth, nor water, nor fire, nor wind, nor sphere of infinite space, nor sphere of infinite consciousness, nor sphere of nothingness, nor sphere of neither perception nor non-perception, nor this world, nor the next world, nor sun, nor moon. And there I say there is neither coming nor going, nor standing still, nor passing away, nor arising without stance, without foundation, without support. This, just this, is the end of suffering. Bhikkhus, I will teach you the far shore, the subtle, the difficult to see, the stable, the undisintegrating, the unmanifest, the peaceful, the unproliferating, the deathless, the sublime, the auspicious, the secure, the destruction of craving the amazing, the unailing Nibbāna, the unafflicted dispassion, purity, freedom, the island, the shelter. So these are the words of the Buddha about the far shore, about the ultimate aim of our practice not to limit ourselves, to keep it open, even if we don't understand, at the moment. Because it will become more and more understandable as we do our practice. So this, um, to end with, actually, from, from the words of Seda Upandita, actually from that retreat in 1985 in Australia, This sums all the um, three pillars of the Dharma up, dana, sila, and the two bhāvanas, concentration and wisdom. Adorned with the garland of giving, feeling joy and dignity with kind living, birth only in states of clarity, great beauty results with integrity. Adorned with the fragrance of virtuous activity, for others a care and sensitivity, birth only in states of contentment, a heart removed of the thorns of resentment. Adorned with the sweetness of tranquility, soft rapture from a life of simplicity, birth only in states of calm peace, mental turbulence and distraction all cease. Adorned with the brightness of clear insight, The true nature of the world is seen right. Birth only in states of ease and happiness, a mind of wise discernment and openness. The three poisons of wrong view, conceit, and craving no longer hinder or cause inner tightening. Vow deeply to develop the true way. Adorned in the heart, then freedom will lay. So let's sit for a moment, let the words dissolve. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. So we'll um, end with the reflections on the sharing of blessings. When we listen to the Dhamma, it's very meritorious to listen to the Dhamma. All of you, for all of us, for giving the Dhamma, for listening to the Dhamma, and there's great merit that's accumulated from that and we can share the merit with each other um, with all the beings here that they're talking about in, the, in this reflection with those who have passed away and um, this is kind of a, a deep form of loving kindness so we can remember that when we share the blessings Okay. so those of you who know it bring up your voices <laughs> I'll follow you Okay. Thank you for listening.